Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Welcome again to those who are with us and those gathered online. It's uh, just good to gather with you to worship this morning. One of my favorite movies from my adolescence was The Sandlot. Does anybody remember The Sandlot movie? The story is set in the 1960s, and it it follows this little band of, of buddies, uh, little adolescent boys. So that's probably why it resonated with me, as that was kind of the season of life that I was in when the movie came out. And this group of boys, they love just hanging out, having a good time together, navigating the adventures of life. And they love baseball. They love baseball a whole lot. One of the most, uh, one of the most memorable scenes of this movie is one hot summer day when they're at the public pool. They're all at the pool together. They're all having fun, splashing. And, and, and of course, these, the, the, these little guys were, were at an age where they were starting to discover girls. And uh, so, of course, they had crushes on all the high school girls. But they were most obsessed with Wendy Peppercorn, the pretty lifeguard at the pool. And she's, she's up there on her perch as they are, they're goofing around, swimming around. And in this, in this infamous scene... Michael Squints Paladoris makes a bold move. So, so Squints, he's, he's, he's kind of a, a, a scrawny little guy. He's got thick, you know, black frame glasses, and he's, he's not the best player on the team. And uh, he, he's, you know, he's not the most handsome little guy, but he's arguably the bravest one on the team. And so Squints, he, he, he makes his move. He swims to the side of the pool. He gets up out of the pool. He saunters his way all the way around to the deep end of the pool, walks out on that diving board, looks up at Wendy, smiles at her, and then he does a pencil dive, pencil dive straight off the side of the diving board, and he sinks, sinks down to the bottom of the pool and stays there for several seconds. And his buddies, the, the rest of the team, all the other guys, they, they don't know what he's up to. They don't know that he's been planning this for several years, and they also know that he doesn't know how to swim. So they, they, they scramble and they, they swim to the side of the pool and they get out and they run all the way around to the deep end and they look on from the side of the pool and they see Squints there at the bottom. They don't know what's going on. They're, they're concerned. And so, so Wendy from her perch up there on the lifeguard stand, she sees the commotion. She sees what's going on. She, and as she looks down, she sees Squints at the bottom of the deep end. And so she does what a lifeguard does. She dives in. She grabs him, grabs his body, lifts him out of the pool, swims his way to the top, and they, they get him to lay down on the side of the pool with other lifeguards, and everybody's, everybody's huddled around watching them. And she begins mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on squints. And so she, so she breathes into, into his mouth, and then she listens to his lungs, and then breathes in and then listens to his lungs again and again, it, it goes on for a while, and his buddies are all getting concerned. Everybody's huddled around, they're getting concerned. But then Squints reaches out his arm, grabs Wendy's head, pushes it into his own as they have a mouth to mouth kiss as she performs life saving resuscitation on him, and he's the first to kiss a girl, a legend, a legend among his buddies. So, of course, Wendy is repulsed, and she, she drags Squints by the arm, and, and she drags him out, out to the pool. 
outside of the pool gates and they, and they all get kicked out, all the buddies, for the whole summer for this stunt on Squint's part. And so he took a risk. He took a risk. Squint took a risk because he knew that, he knew that Wendy would rise to the call of duty and dive in and come get him. And he, he had faith, and he took a risk because he had faith in his planning ability, his ability to, to feign this, this drowning, his ability to pull this thing off. And so he took a risk, and as a result, he becomes a legend among his buddies. He's the first to kiss a girl. And he becomes famous for uh, the, the, the day, the week, and the year. Our scripture passage for this morning also involves someone who took a risk. Took a risk based on faith. This individual we're talking about is another one of our mothers of Jesus, and this is Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite woman. Rahab lives in the city of Jericho, this, this city that God was about to give to his people Israel. They were about to conquer this city as they were as they were moving forward in their, in their destiny to occupy and to conquer the promised land of Canaan. And so here Rahab lives, and she's described as a, as a prostitute, a harlot. This is a woman who sold her, her body to anybody who was willing and able to pay. Rahab lived on the, on the margins of society. Literally, the text tells us that she lives inside the city wall. And Rahab, with her vocation, she doesn't even probably have the security of a, of a marriage, which was so key in the ancient world to offer stability and protection and, and economic possibilities. But her story, as we see in this text in Joshua 2, her broken place, her story intersects with the story of God intersects with the story of God, and she and her family are preserved when Israel, when the people of God conquer and take Jericho. And Rahab becomes commended for her faith. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, this is the hall of faith. This is where all the heroes of faith of the people of God are enshrined there. We have Abraham and Moses and several of the judges in Old Testament history. But there, right there, is Rahab who's commended for her faith in Hebrews 11. From Rahab comes great kings. Great kings like David. As we look at the genealogies in the Gospels, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, where it lists the descendants leading to Jesus, Rahab is inserted in the genealogy, and down the line comes great kings such as David and then, of course, the King of Kings, Savior of the world, Jesus. But as we look at Joshua chapter 2 this morning, we learn about the nature of faith. We learn about the nature of faith. And as we look at Rahab's faith experience, it, help, it might help make sense of your own faith experience. And so our big takeaway from this text that we'll see in the story of Rahab is that God welcomes faith and that God honors faith. So the Israelites, as you know, right where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 2, the Israelites are camped right on the doorstep of Jericho. 
and of Canaan and of, of the promised land. This, this land God had given the, the Israelites' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this, this land is repeatedly invoked as an inheritance and as a promise to this people, God's chosen people. And so they're, they're camped in this moment on the east side of the Jordan River. And God had already, God had already taken care of some of the occupants of that land. There was uh, the king, King Sihon and, and Og, and these were kings of the Amorites. These were pagan peoples, pagan cities who occupied this area east of the Jordan. And God's people are able to handily defeat them. These kings were stubborn. They wouldn't let Israel pass peacefully through their territory as they're on their way to the promised land. And so because of their stubbornness, God hands them over to Israel in defeat. So they're there. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. And Joshua, as we see here in in this text, he sends two spies in. He sends them on a recon mission. Here they are on the doorstep, and Joshua, who had taken over leadership of, of the people from Moses, he says, go see what it's like in Jericho. Go check it out. What's the vibe? What are the walls like? Come and bring us a report. So the spies go, two of them, two men, and as they enter Jericho, they choose to enter the home of Rahab, the harlot. The one who sadly sold her body to anyone willing and able to pay. It's an interesting choice for lodging for two of the men of the nation of Israel. Some, some other sources, uh, some later sources refer to Rahab as, a, as an innkeeper, so to speak. But it's still fair to say that maybe what happened inside that place of business was was unsavory. So why would they choose a scandalous place such as that? Well, these spies, these two men from the nation of Israel, they may have counted on the fact that men, perhaps some of them foreign, would freely come and go from Rahab's home, from her inn. And so so they were able to sort of maybe blend in with the activity coming and going from that place and hopefully stay undetected on there reconnaissance mission in Jericho. So here's the spies. They're in Rahab's home. They're talking to her. And as we will see, the story of her faith and the experience of her faith unfolds. And the first thing we see about Rahab is that her faith is a response. Her faith is a response. It's a response to evidence and story and testimony. And so join me as we look at Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. 
So we see here, Rahab had some information. She had some stories. She had some testimony that was circulating, circulating around the city. Word had gotten out about how this God of Israel had brought these people through the Red Sea as they escaped slavery in Egypt. God had parted the waters. They also got the recent news about how God had just handed over their enemies on the east side of the Jordan just easily to them. And they conquered those people who stood in the way of their destiny in the promised land. So this word had been circulating. Maybe it came through merchants who traveled through the area. Maybe Rahab picked up on some of the chatter among the men who came to her inn, who stopped by. However it happened, word was getting around. Testimony was getting around. Story of the power of God was getting around. As we think about that, it, it kind of shows us that, that evidence, reason, story, testimony, all of those things are completely acceptable in an, under, in an acceptable path to faith, even in our own lives, even in our own day and age. At Free Christian, we just wrapped up another session of the Alpha Ministry. And Alpha is well known to many people in the church. We've been doing it for a number of years. But if you're not familiar with Alpha, Alpha is a, it's, it's a, it's a place to explore questions of faith. And it's a place to explore the claims of Jesus. And it's a safe place to ask questions. At Alpha, we, we, we discuss prayer. We discuss the problem of evil. We discuss Jesus and, and, and why he had to die. And so, so, for example, in the Alpha ministry, particularly toward the beginning of the Alpha ministry, there is a place for evidence, story, information, to help people in their journey of faith. And that's not all of Alpha, but it's an example of how evidence is important. So there's a place for this in our journey. But there's evidence, but we also consider stories of the power of God. Even today, this isn't just Bible stuff. God is on the move today, and so we consider people's stories, their testimonies, how people have been healed, restored, reconciled, transformed. And as we consider faith, sometimes we look at the lives of those who trust God, and that is compelling to us, and that's powerful to us. So, if you're exploring faith this morning, if that's maybe where you're at, have you considered the evidence? Have you considered something like an alpha? Have you considered the stories, the testimony that maybe you've heard around your life? And if so, have you responded to it? Have you responded to it? Others of us in the room, probably several of us might relate to the fact that we've been walking with God for some time. We trust Jesus. We've been walking with him but faith can wane sometimes. But if that's you, story, testimony, remembering what the Lord has done in your life and the lives of others is just as important at your place in the journey too.
And that's a very biblical thing. God's people are called again and again and again in the Bible to remember the things that he has done. So Rahab. Remember Rahab. There was evidence. There was story. There was testimony. She took it to heart. And she responded. She responded in faith. And so this is the first part of her faith experience. So Rahab's faith is responsive. Word had gotten around about the power of God and she was compelled. It was responsive. And this was her on-ramp to becoming part of the covenant people of God, as we will see. But secondly, her faith was active. Her faith was active. Back up with me, if you will, to verses 4 through 7 of Joshua 2. Rahab here is talking to these messengers sent by Joshua. And it says, But the woman had taken the two men, the two spies, and she had hidden them. She said, Yes, talking to the messengers who came from the king of Jericho to her doorstep. She says to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But Rahab had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So the text tells us that the king of Jericho himself sent messengers to Rahab's door because word had somehow gotten to the king that these men may be there. And this is what Rahab tells those messengers who come to her door. And so she takes a risk. Rahab takes a risk. She shakes these pursuers off the trail. She redirects them. She distracts them. Rahab then talks to the spies who she's harboring, who she's hiding on her roof. And she shares this confession of faith in their God that she has formed because of the story, because of the testimony, because of the power of God that she has heard about. She gives this confession of faith that their God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And then she makes a deal. She makes a deal with the spies. She makes a deal that her life and the lives of her family members would be preserved when God would lead the armies of Israel into Jericho. So verses 15 and 16 report this. That right after this deal is made, report how this, the spies then go on their way in verse 15. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. So we have to appreciate the risk here. Again, the king of Jericho, the king of the city, sends pursuers to her house based on the information that he had. And as these pursuers are there, if there was any suspicion, anything fishy, any way that her secret was given up, her life could be snuffed out like that. What did her life matter? 
She lived on the edges of society, a harlot. Her life could have been snuffed out, and so she takes a huge risk. But notice here, notice that there's no second guessing from these messengers who come to her doorstep. There's no suspicion. There's no further interrogation, it seems. Maybe it's fair to say that when God is in it, when his favor is on you, he prepares the way. He smooths out the circumstances. He takes care of the details like he did for Rahab, this woman of faith. So Rahab shows that her faith was active here. John Wimber is, was one of the early leaders of the Vineyard Movement. Vineyard is an association of churches around the world that, that I was a part of for a number of years. And John Wimber is famous for saying that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. In other words, faith is going to involve some level of stepping out on a limb sometimes. It's going to involve some risk. It's going to involve some level of doing what feels uncomfortable or unnatural, something that feels beyond your ability. So whatever faith looks like for you today, this week, it may well require some level of risk, as it did for Rahab. Rahab is referenced in the New Testament a couple of times. And these are really key when we see these figures who are, who are, who are woven back into the story and the testimony of the New Testament. And she is referenced in James 2.25. And in that chapter in the New Testament, James discusses the importance of faith being accompanied by action. Faith expressing itself in deeds. And in this chapter, chapter 2 of James, he makes this uh, the famous argument that faith without deeds is dead. And so right in that section, we read James 2.25, in the same way, he says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? So in James 2, we see Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. She's held up as this model of faith model of an active faith. And her faith, her budding, brand new faith, couldn't have even been that well-informed, couldn't have even been that sophisticated, that profound. She didn't even yet have the law of the, of the nation of Israel, the law of God. She didn't even have the word of God. But what little faith she had, she expressed it in her actions, and that's why she's enshrined forever in our scripture. So we see in Rahab's life, faith is a response. It's a response to story. Faith is also active. It's also living and dynamic. But thirdly, faith is transformative. This point, we, we mostly support by texts around Joshua 2, as we look at the rest of the testimony of Scripture about Rahab. And we're not told a whole lot about Rahab. Moving forward, we do see, as the narrative of Joshua continues, we do see, of course, that her life and the lives of her family members, is they're saved. They're saved as that city is conquered. And the writer of 
Joshua also tells us in chapter 6, verse 25, that Rahab and her family live among the Israelites to this day. They're brought in to the covenant community of Israel. And so Rahab's story intersects with the story of the God of the universe. And this woman whose livelihood had involved selling her body to anyone willing and able to pay is suddenly grafted in to this nation, to this people, to this story of God. And so with Rahab, even in her broken past, she's folded in to the great unfolding story of God. According to the genealogy of the Gospel of Matthew 1, Rahab here eventually marries a man named Salmon, or Salah, as some translations have it. And so at some point, this same Rahab, she enters into a marriage, presumably a monogamous marriage. And together, they conceive Boaz. If you remember your Old Testament, Boaz is is the, the, the kinsman redeemer, this key figure in the book of Ruth. Boaz becomes great-grandfather of King David. And this Boaz, as we see his story in Ruth, and I encourage you to go, go check that out, he, Boaz is a, seems to be a godly man, a, a faithful man, a compassionate man, a generous man. And his character is, is on display and highlighted in that book. So our ability to make conclusions about the rest of Ruth's life is a little bit limited, but it seems as though her trajectory the rest of her days is a good one as she lives among the people of Israel. And so through her faith and out of her risk and her newfound faith in the God of Israel, this broken woman, marginalized woman, is taken up into the story of God. And eventually through her line, we receive the blessing of Jesus This shows us, I think, that sometimes God doesn't just use the good people, the people that have it together, the pious ones. God uses all of us. God welcomed Rahab's faith and then honors her faith in the scriptures for us. God looks for hearts who are open to him. God looks for people who don't just want to cling to the idols and to the gods of their day. Rahab could have just done that. Plenty of gods in Canaan. Rather, he's looking for those who want to be loyal to him, to believe in his power, to acknowledge his power. And so the good news for us this morning is that God uses the broken. Rahab probably thought her life was a dead end. She probably said, this is it. This is what life's going to look like for me. Until she found a God who had real power. Until she had a people who had a destiny. Until she found a people who were taking new ground. And so Rahab's faith is transformative. Well, faith is key for us too, friends. Faith is still key today. Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please 
God. And what is our faith? What is our faith? Well, it's faith in the fact that God has done it. And it's faith in the fact that God is doing it still. And it's faith in the fact that God will do it. And so God has done it. Jesus has come, taken on flesh, incarnated for us, taken on humanity, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and then rose again. This is part of the good news that we celebrate in the gospel. God is doing it. God is still at work. This is just just Bible stuff. This is today. God is at work transforming, healing, mending, reconciling. And God will do it. Right now we celebrate Jesus' first coming. We will one day celebrate his second coming when he returns to judge the world to make all things right and lead us into the new heavens and the new earth. So what in your life demands faith right now? Maybe you need faith that God is going to move you to the next level in your vocation, your working life. God's given you skills and abilities and a calling and maybe things have gotten a bit comfortable and maybe you're called to step out on a limb, step out in a, in a way that feels a little bit uncomfortable and natural to pursue his calling. Maybe you need faith, uh, again, in your workplace. Maybe there's things about the culture of that place that God's calling you to make some difference in. Maybe there's some conflict, dysfunction, whatever it is. Maybe God is inviting you into a faith experience to step out on a limb. Maybe in this season, God is calling you and you need faith to invest some of your time, your money, your energy, your resources, whatever it may be, to support ministries, to support people, neighbors who have needs, physical, emotional, spiritual. Maybe that feels uncomfortable. Maybe you need faith to step out to be intentional about pursuing some broken relationship, to pursue forgiveness, to pursue reconciliation, because God is the God of reconciliation. Maybe you need faith because God is calling you to give up some of your time to mentor someone, to disciple someone, to invest in someone, to get a counselor, to get a spiritual director, whatever it may be. Or maybe God is calling you to be that for somebody else. So what in your life requires faith right now? Many in the room here this morning, many in our church, have faced extreme tests of faith, extreme challenges, extreme hardship. Like, you're the kind of people that if we could add you to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we might, because of your story, your testimony, what God has brought you through. But as we close, I'd like to share a little story from my own life, and it feels a little bit tame, it feels mundane, but I think it illustrates the point. My wife and I, we've been trying to find a house so we can relocate this way a little bit closer. And we've been seriously looking for a couple of months now. And as you may know, the real estate market is a little bit crazy these days. The middle of my la- last week, my wife found this place online and she loved it and it was great. And then I kind of came around, I warmed up to it too. And so we said, yeah, let's go. Let's go book a private tour. And 
So we booked a private tour for last Friday night and got in there. Oh, look at the, look at the wood floors. And, oh, look at this huge bedroom that's twice the size of our current one. And nice yard back there. Got a two-thirds of an acre. Shed in the back. Woods. Fireplace. All the storage we could ever need. It was great. It was great. We're excited. Next day, Saturday, we go to the open house and pull up to the house. And as we get closer, we see the line of cars just lined up, up and down the street. We see the open house. And then we see all the people lined up in the driveway in the driving rain. It's like, why are you here? And, and so our excitement got a little bit tempered. But the next 48 hours... We're intense. We're firing off emails left and right, getting our paperwork together, looking at our finances, all of this. Flurry of activity. Finally, we submitted our offer, and we prayed that God would open the door or close the door. It's in your hands, God. We didn't pray that we'd get the house. We just prayed that God's will would be done. Pretty soon, we learned that there were 21 offers, many of them 50 grand or more over asking at numbers we are not comfortable with, so it wasn't looking good. So as we figured, the next day we learned that our offer was rejected to a buyer who was offering much more. So it feels mundane in light of some of the things that many of you have gone through, but that that was an intense faith experience for us recently. And of course, we didn't get the result we wanted, but we learned a lot. And it was an important reminder. And here's why it was an important experience for us. is because through that, through that pressurized experience, we gained clarity. We gained wisdom. We gained a better sense of how to steward what God has given us. My wife and I have a better sense of unity after that experience. So it was a reminder that this God that we put our faith in is a good father. He's a good God. He knows what's best for us. His plan is better. He is in control. He wants to help us thrive. And he honors our desires to be stewards of what he's given us. So our faith is not just like stepping out, taking risks in the wide unknown. Our faith is rooted in trust in a God who loves us, who cares for us who is for us. And so right in the middle of whatever step of faith you're invited to take this week is a loving Heavenly Father. As you look at your own life, ask yourself, where do you need faith? Where do you need risk? Where do you need to step out? And as we're shown in God's word, he welcomes faith and he honors faith. And even in your brokenness, even in the brokenness of this world, God takes us up into his story like he did Rahab and he makes us a blessing to the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you take the broken and make them a blessing. Thank you that you take us up into your story as we place our faith in you. What little kernel of faith some of us may have this morning. Lord, we offer it to you. Help us to give that to you, that you might meet us in that place. Give us clarity, God. Give us insight. Give us understanding about where we need faith. 
and where we need risk. But we remember, God, even in these challenging times, we remember that right in the middle of the steps of faith you invite us to, there you stand, a loving Father, faithful God. Help us to see that. In Jesus' name, amen.